Hello, buongiorno and benvenuti to this very special edition of Seen Anything Good Lately, coming from the Lido in Venice at the 77th Venice Film Festival. It's the first film festival since the Covid pandemic and one of the only major artistic events happening anywhere in the world at the moment. So I've come to find out how it's working, what's showing, who's showing up and if anyone's seen anything good lately. I had a gulp of my red wine and the end where he sort of throws his dad under the bus spat my wine everywhere because I was so shocked. I've been watching lots of John Ford films. It was completely amazing. I cannot encourage people to see it enough. I think, first of all, I was so happy to be back to, you know, in a theatre. I ran. I ran. <laughs> I literally ran. I wanted to go there. You heard there from actresses Stacey Martin and Romola Garay, director Roger Michelle and Italian star Pierfrancesco Favino. Just some of the people I got to talk to as the film world got back to a kind of normal. I mean, there weren't the usual Hollywood films there and the awards season kickstarters that we associate with Venice, but there were stars from Kate Blanchett and Tilda Swinton to Oliver Stone and Pedro Almodovar. And there were plenty of films playing to big audiences and plenty of reviews to file. It was, without doubt, a film festival. And I was there, viewing it through steamed up glasses and a breathing through a mask, but I was pretty happy to be here. It was quite a surprise and quite an immersion in humanity for the first time in a long, long time. But the bars and the restaurants were busy, there were aperol spritzes and spaghetti vongole and fritto misto, and the Venetians seem very happy to have us as they go about their business, going around the beach, sipping from their cocktails, zipping about on the boats at the weekend, and seeing some movies, many movies, in their home city, which was under such a strict lockdown, and felt like it was just enjoying a taste of freedom again, without so many tourists and cruise ships, and sorry to say it, no Americans. It was quite nice, but let's hope it all lasts. But let's just go through a few of the people I'll be talking to on this edition of the show. Stacey Martin, the gorgeous actress who made her debut in Lars von Trier's Nymphomaniac. She's here uh, with French film Amant. She's bilingual and super cool. Uh, she was great in that film. So I got to catch up with her following her role as a juror in Venice last year. Uh, Romola Garay was here starring as Eleanor Marx, Karl Marx's daughter in Miss Marx. And I got some time with her. Jim Broadbent gave a delightful performance in The Duke. So we'll hear from him and his director for that film, Roger Michel. And I've got Italian star Pierfrancesco Favino, one of Italy's major international stars these days currently on the screens in the UK, uh, starring in uh, mafia epic The Traitor. So I wanted to talk to him for a little bit more of a local perspective. And I think that should do us. Oh, and I've also got an interview with Dennis Hopper and Orson Welles. Well, not me interviewing them, them interviewing each other in a new documentary by Philip Van Rimser called Hopper Wells. Well, I think that should do us. You'll forgive me if this is an extended episode. It is a bumper show. It's a Venice special, and it really was special being at Venice this year. So I'm going to bring you as much of the atmosphere and as many of the guests and films as I possibly can. So uh, forgive me if we go on a little bit longer than usual. I'm sure you will bear with us because it's going to be great fun capturing all of that. We'll find out who was here. We'll find out about the new films premiering on the Lido. And of course, course we'll be asking if everyone's seen anything good lately. 
we hear from all my Venice star guests, I'll tell you if I've seen anything good lately at the Venice Film Festival. Well, of course I did. But I can't say there were films that blew everyone away. It's a difficult year and many producers aren't risking putting their films here or couldn't travel with them. So usually we get a La La Land or a Gravity or a Shape of Water and the awards season would be well underway. There wasn't anything quite like that this year. I suppose The Duke was the most mainstream success, and I really did like it. It was charming and funny and Ealing-like, the little man against the system, sweetly eccentric in a very British way. And Jim Broadbent is lovely in it, one of his best performances in a glittering career, I suppose. So I'm looking forward to speaking to him a bit later. I really liked Luca Guadagnino's documentary about shoemaker Salvatore Ferragamo, which was all about the shoes, which I I didn't think would be very exciting. But it was, because it charts Hollywood history and Italian history through the story of this peasant kid who became a cobbler genius and he fitted the feet of the early silent stars in Hollywood from Mary Pickford and Lillian Gish to Valentino and Gloria Swanson and Douglas Fairbanks and he shod all the epics and the western of the golden era of Hollywood. I just, I didn't know this <laughs> so it was fascinating and as you'd imagine from the director of Call Me By Your Name and I Am Love, it's super stylish and beautifully put together with contributions from Martin Scorsese and Deborah Landis and Manolo Blahnik and Grace Coddington. It's very cool and very fashionable and very enjoyable indeed. It's called Shoemaker of Dreams by Luca Guadagnino. There was an Indian film called The Disciple, which really stuck with me. It's about a rather dull man trying very hard to become a revered classical music singer in Mumbai, despite very little encouragement from his guru. Initially, I thought, it's not a great hit, this film, but The Disciple really stuck with me. I was really impressed by it and its director and the whole look of it. A really great take on modern India and a great take on failure. Making that dramatic is not easy, and and he did so brilliantly. I was very moved by a documentary called Final Account about the last surviving everyday perpetrators of Nazism in Germany. Uh, it was obsessively made by Luke Holland over a number of years and finally put together and received with ovations here. I thought I'd go along and see my friend Luke and congratulate him on the movie. Um, I had the pleasure of getting to know him quite well over the years. We were on the board of the UK Jewish Film Festival together and he was always turning up talking about this project he was making and it looked like it was really taking a toll on him over the years on his health and etc and he, he thought he'd never get it made so to see it selected in the festival I thought brilliant I'll go along and here was this really gripping powerful documentary about Germans admitting guilt from a long time ago you know just their part in, in how Nazism was implemented and the Holocaust was implemented their part in a rather banal you know functory way and Luke wasn't there Luke had died Luke died about seven or eight weeks ago of cancer, age 71. I didn't know that he died. His wife and his grown-up children were there to see this film finally, his life's work finally on the big screen, finally getting standing ovations that Luke so would have loved to have known about. It was really emotional, and that's going to stay with me for a long time. The film is Final Account, and it really is Luke's masterwork as a documentary maker. (laughs) 
that's what I saw. Here's a smattering of some international critics and film journalists who I talked to at the festival and I asked them, as they were all asking each other over dinner and over drinks, seen anything good lately? I'm Stephanie Bunbury. I'm a reporter for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age in Australia. Today, I saw Quentin Dupier's Mandibles, which is about a giant fly. It is hilarious. Have you seen anything good lately, Job? Yeah, you, Jason. You're gorgeous. Hello, I'm Raphael Abraham of the Financial Times. I surprised myself by seeing and really liking The Duke. Uh, I've seen great things lately. I saw Mandibul questa mattina and it was a brisk 77 minutes of crazy dumb and dumber en français. I'm Andreas Wiseman. I'm the international editor of Deadline Hollywood. And uh, I was going to say apples as well, but I'll give you a different one. Luca Guadagnino's movie, the director of Call Me By Your Name, and he has a documentary about the Italian shoe designer Salvatore Ferragamo. Hi. My name is Nick. I'm here writing for Variety. I mean, you know, I've been watching stuff with my daughter, and we finally caught up with the Elton John movie, Rocketman, and, like, we really enjoyed that. Things that have really stayed with me have been Luke Holland's final account, this kind of devastating documentary about these members of the Nazi youth. My name is Brian Viner. Yeah, I'm the Daily Mail's film critic. I'm sorry to hear that. Yes, well, you know, we, we, bear these, uh, we bear these crosses. I very much enjoyed The Duke. I really, really enjoyed the Pedro Almodovar short, uh, The Human Voice. Uh, it's an adaptation of a John Cocteau short play that takes place almost entirely in the span of one apartment. And it's about a woman who is completely and utterly alone and adrift, separated from the rest of the world, trying to connect. I'm Jeffrey McNabb. I write for The Independent and Screen International. And I've seen a film that I very much liked, which was a film called Apples. But it's a film that's set in the middle of a pandemic. Pandemic. Instead of getting coronavirus, you get amnesia and you can't remember anything. Would you rather get amnesia than coronavirus? Well, if my experiences were similar to those of the guy in the film, I think amnesia probably would be slightly better. I watched the third season of Dark, but I fell asleep last night. I was a bit drunk, actually. Hope you got a flavour of some of the films and some of the atmosphere of the Venice Film Festival, which was in full swing, as you can hear. There were interviews everywhere, there were junkets, and I was lucky enough to go and meet Stacey Martin, who's fast becoming a muse for film and fashion in Paris and in London and at major film festivals. She was on the jury here last year, returning this year to star in what I think is her best role yet. It's called Amant, or Lovers, uh, a lethal love triangle thriller starring... Stacy, Pierre Ninet and Benoit Magimel, major French stars, uh, all about a woman whose drug dealer boyfriend and mad first love disappears suddenly. And years later, now she's married to a solid, rich man, she runs into her ex, played by Pierre Ninet, and is consumed by passion again. Here's what Stacy had to say about being back in Venice, about her new film, and what she's been watching. Stacy, welcome. Thank you. Lovely to see you. You were on the jury last year at Venice here. I was. Yeah, so it's it's really nice to come back and this time on the other side, although I am quite sad I won't be able to watch how many films there are. You loved it, didn't you? Doing I that. loved it, yeah. I mean, I could just sit inside and watch films every day, so this that was quite wonderful. And to get dressed up and go out every night and kind of do the... We didn't. We didn't. We were very serious and we were told don't go to parties and don't talk about films and which is totally fine. I was like, I'm going to watch films, order room service. It's kind of what I do at home, so... (laughs) 
the uh, that must be a big difference between last year's festival mm. and then this year's festival. Although in a, in a way, you, the way you describe the jury duty, it's slightly isolated anyway. It's yeah, like kind of I'm quite down. a homebody, so I think it's definitely probably easier for me um, than maybe someone who goes out and is very sociable. But it's definitely just even arriving, you definitely feel that things are calmer. Um, the organization's very intense. Um, everyone's very clear on what is allowed and what isn't allowed. And I think that's needed. And there's also the other side of it just being so exciting and full of hope and joy that a festival is still happening. And, and it's just, you know, a nice celebration. It is a good celebration. And it's a great start for your film. In which I have to say, I think it's one of your best performances of your oh, career. Wow. Thank you. I think it's going to send you off into a, like a whole new stratosphere. <laughs> Thank you. If I yeah. may say, it was definitely it's definitely very different um, from anything I've done in the past, and I think that's also very that's very much thanks to Nicole Garcia. I think the way that she films actresses is very peculiar there's something quite intense and quite war and what she brings out of people whether it's Marion Cotillard in From the Land of the Moon or Catherine Deneuve in Place Vendôme it, there's something quite unhinged and quite fascinating was it because it, you are the the female element here in mm. between the two battling males in a way did it help to have a female director she seemed to be on your on your side if we're on anyone's side I think it's your side yeah. I think just having Nicole as an incredible director was really just what I took from it the most. I, obviously, I'm sure there are elements of her being a woman that helped, but I don't think they were as, as strong. I, I'm, I was such a big admirer of her work before that to be able to explore and to try things, and she's very... She can be quite tough, which I really love, and she would really push boundaries of what is expected from a female character, which I think is very important. Um, and she would never really settle, and I think it's quite refreshing to have when to. When constantly... you say push boundaries of a female character, there's there's physical boundaries because there's a lot of love making and a lot yes. of physicality. In it's not that much love making in this film, though, which I think is quite interesting because it shows that love is also something so intangible. It's something that you feel in between someone, but it's hard to quantify. Oh, but it starts with the most gorgeous, sort of physically mm. sort of nuzzling role. Yeah. Like, you know, it's not love making, as like, mm. it's not sex, let's call it, but it is. Post-coital, Yeah, it's physical. <laughs> it's, it's sort of yeah. sniffing, you know, smelling. Well, it's very much, I think it's, everyone's had this first love, this, this memory of your first love, it being this very carnal, physical, breathtaking experience and that person you'll always remember them that relationship that you had that you you say oh this person was my first love it's something that we all have and I think Nicole really showed that through the cinematography where like you said it's all about the skin and the textures and this rather than seeing the physical act of love I, I personally I don't think showing people having sex is that interesting on screen because it kills and we've all seen you have it do it, love. Yes, we've had enough I mean, of you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just I think you want to keep the mis the mystery in it. No, that's what I loved about yeah. it, that physicality mm. when you nuzzle into his neck and yeah. you're just kind And of... it says a lot more about a relationship. But it also, when you then see him again, not mm. to do a spoiler, when you see him again, that physical mm. judder, I thought that was 
fabulously played, how you hid behind the tree, how you, mm. we, we saw it play out, all of this kind of shot right through mm. your, your soul. That, that person that you dread to find and suddenly you see them. And, dread yet. And you d you're excited, but you're heartbroken at the same time. And you know from that moment on that she knows, she sees him. She knows her life is not going to be the same now because there's no way that she'll be able to avoid him or no go and see him. Where, where did you have lockdown? Were you in, in France or in England? I was in England, yeah. And I how live was in England. that? Were you all right? I was fortunate to actually be able to enjoy the lockdown. Um, one of the things that I really loved about it is is just being able to switch off and not having any outside pressure of of working of doing the you know being at events or doing this or doing that there was a real sense of just peace um and and then obviously things sort of reopened and reality comes back in very quickly what did you do <laughs> stacy martin did you, have you seen anything good lately I've I've seen I mean I've seen a lot but whether or not I remember what I've seen is very different. I currently just finished Selling Sunset, which was incredible. That's a property show, right? Yes, that's a, a sort of reality TV mixed with property showings. It's it's great. In yeah. big LA houses. In LA houses, and they all they're obviously all from celebrities, but you never know who. But then the drama between the estate agents is quite fantastic. The sense of fashion is is pretty insane. And it was sort of an amazing binge watch. Uh, what else? <laughs> there was Succession, which is very different, but that was incredible. Did you watch one and two? I binge I'm one and two. I'm terrible at pacing myself. So I think I watched the two seasons in about, I think, four days. It was something quite dangerous. That's um, a lot of bile. That's I a just, lot of I poison. thought it was so great. The acting was amazing and you despise every character in succession, but at the same time, you want all of them to win and you love them. And I thought it was so wonderfully acted. I just, it was one of those TV shows I thought there's only a show like that once in a while. And that was definitely one that for me stuck out. Yeah, I was with you too, because I'd, I'd missed it and I thought I'd yeah. better catch up with it. Yeah. Lockdown was perfect. Every it was night, great. I was like, Every let's, night. let's have some more. Next episode, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Even though they're so hateful. It's so, and it's so dark. And, and I mean, in the last episode is just, I, I remember I was quite crying because I was so upset. And then I had a gulp of my red wine and the end where he sort of throws his dad under the bus spat my wine everywhere because I was so shocked I was like well, and I was crying and it was just I mean it's you know only great shows can do it's that got red wine stains all over the place now it was worth it for succession it was worth it I mean if I could even just be have a cameo on that show and just be at the back watching them I would my career would would end well, we'll let very them know. happy yeah. you know. <laughs> well, what can we see you I mean this was this was a nice surprise seeing you selected at Venice but yeah. for this one I didn't know you'd made this uh, what, what have you got some work stored up or is it now starting again I've just finished so we were finishing um, a Netflix and BBC show called The Serpent so we've just finished that now which is very exciting so like a lot of uh, like an eight-parter it's a mini series mm -hmm. and it's um, it's based on Charles Sobrage who was a serial killer during the 60s, 70s, and it, it tells his story and, and how he came to be, basically. Is it US or British set? Um, it's, well, we filmed in Thailand for a lot of it, and then we finished, um, we finished due to COVID, we had to go to Tring, 
to be in Bangkok. It was great. <laughs> but you've got that in the bag, so that's going to come out. That's done, yeah. And then there's a film called Louis Wayne by Will Sharp that should be coming out. We finished before lockdown. That should be coming out, I mean, I'm hoping next year. We just, you know, who knows now So you've days. done some series, you're doing some Netflix yes. now. So that's, yeah. that's quite a different pacing. Quite different. Very different, yeah, very different. And at the same time, just quite, I remember seeing the monitor one day and, and, and thinking, oh, it is a Netflix show. It had that very sort of Netflix um, image, which, in, in a very beautiful and cinematic way. It was quite exciting, but I didn't quite, for me, I just loved the project. And then suddenly looking at the monitor, I was like, oh wow, I'm, I'm doing this. This is this is happening, Stacey. Someone's going to be binging Stacey Martin somewhere. Like, and, and, yeah, you know. not me, that's for sure. <laughs> no, that was, those are the ones you don't binge. Yeah, those ones I don't binge. But it's, I think it's really exciting what's going to happen with this one. Do you, do you see a, a difference there when you're doing a, a television one like that to doing, I suppose, what's like almost a classic French film that you're in uh, in Amon. Definitely. very. It's a very different um, setting, especially French films are set up very differently. Um, and even there are so many more films made in France um, than there are in England. That's just a reality. Um, but I think with TV, it's just the pace of it is definitely faster. Whereas with, for example, this film with Nicole, she would arrive on set and not quite know what shots she wanted. And it was so exciting seeing her figuring it out and then trying something new and then saying, oh no, actually you're sitting down here, but let's go outside and you'll be walking. And for me as an actor, that's utter joy. For lighting, it's a bit different, but with uh, with Netflix and the TV series, it's, you have to, you know, time is ticking. So do you get great outfits in the Netflix one as well? I do, yeah. Well, it's a period piece, so it was really exciting. It was really great to be able to build something and just have that reference. I mean, you can really go, go yeah. and have fun with it. And so one of the things great. about lockdown is that I, I don't know about you, but I, I was in my jogging bottoms quite a lot of the time. Much, and I yeah. don't know if you were. I, I can't imagine you out, out of glamorous outfits. Is it nice to suddenly get dressed again? It is. It's nice to suddenly be able to do something on a project that you've loved. And I think it's the, the same with everyone who's come to Venice. It's that sort of, we've all come because we love cinema and we love our job. There's a true passion for it. So it's quite a celebratory moment, I think, especially, you know, with, with everything going on. So I think it is nice to make it special. And what are you wearing today? I am wearing Louis Vuitton. Very nice. Yes. I like it. Thank you. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a red carpet to come and there's everything to come, so you get more outfits. Yes, Hooray. exactly. Uh, but I say that because you did look fantastic. I think it's important that your character mm. in this film always bringing a different, I don't know, look to suit her emotions. Yeah, it was really important that we had different phases and, and different, almost different identities because she really went through being one person to finding herself again. And yeah. I think the importance of the epilogue at the end where she's emancipated herself from relationships, from love, and she's finally herself. That was also quite an, an important creation that we had with Nicole. Well, I'm very glad that I've seen something good lately, which is your film, Amor, you. in Venice. And thank you for sharing your, your selling sunsets with us. Yeah. You <laughs> might hate me after watching it, but you just I'm wanna, willing to take the risk. You just want to be on it one day. Don't come I don't think house. I could, but I definitely want to watch more of it. So <laughs> I'll let them know again. Succession <laughs> and Selling Sunset. You're, yeah, you're, you're exactly. ready and I'm available. <laughs> Stacey, lovely to see you. Enjoy Venice. Thank lovely to have you, you back you here. Too. Lovely to be back here, I guess, yeah. for all of us. Isn't, I know. I feel everyone's just kind of looking at each other going, hi. Is it? Is this is nice. <laughs>
we are here. Are we allowed? Are we allowed? Are we allowed to talk? Yeah. No, I think everyone feels like it just everyone's quite cautious and mindful. I know. I feel a bit distanced from like shouting at you. Well, next year. Next year. <laughs> Lovely to Touch see you. <laughs> Yeah, I like that film very much. You know me, I'm a sucker for a bit of French film. And I'm sure we'll see more of it at a later date. It's called Amant from Nicole Garcia, starring Stacey Martin. Or Stacey Martin. One film we'll definitely hear more of is The Duke, which was a bit of a balm, really, giving Venice a laugh and a lift and brought to light a story from the British headlines for a whole new generation. It's about a bloke called Kempton Bunton, a rather strange, eccentric chap from Newcastle, who in 1961 stole Goya's Duke of Wellington from the National Gallery and hid it in his cupboard. It was a headline story all throughout the 60s uh, and even featured as a gag in James Bond's Doctor No. It's hanging in the villain's lair and Sean Connery walks past it. The paint is there and he says, oh, there you are. Uh, I, it's a joke I never understood before and neither did Roger Michelle, the director of Notting Hill and Enduring Love and Louis Kent when I asked him. Uh, he's teaming up again with Louis Kent star Jim Broadbent uh, and he's given Jim Broadbent a brilliant role in this, a role to remember. Uh, and I got to talk to them right at the start, just before they were lining up uh, to go and see the premiere of their film and I wondered if they had actually heard of any of this story before. Thank you for coming to Venice. Yeah, <laughs> Was it a big decision, pleasure. Jim? It was a bit, yeah. yeah. You got vulnerable people at home, so you got to be apprehensive about it. And yeah, absolutely. Sort of yeah. And did you always know, Roger, that it was going to be, oh, I'm coming to Venice, my film's selected, I'm going to come? I mean, I was waiting to see whether Italy was going to fall into the two-week quarantine, yeah. because I can't, I can't go back. I, I've got too many childcare issues to be able to go back and do two weeks quarantine. I know. Uh, <laughs> well, we're here, though, yeah, we're so, here. We which we it. celebrate. And yeah. the Duke is fabulous. Really enjoyed Great. that. Good. Really, really hit the sweet spot, I think, this morning. Good. Which uh, one did you go to, the first one? I saw one? the one at 11.15. OK. And it went out, it went to play well, It played it? really well. Yeah. Yeah, people were laughing in the right places, Great. I think. Uh, you see, I've never seen it with an audience, so I can't wait to see it tonight with an audience. How did it come to you as a story? Through Nikki Benth Bentham, the producer, yeah. who, and she, I'd never heard of the story. And in fact, I don't think Jim had either. No. Um, and, and yet it's clearly, well, quite a well-known story. Well, yeah. it was in 1963, because yeah. they put it into Doctor No. Yeah. But had you heard of it? I'd never heard of it, no. no. And I didn't, yeah. I'd seen Doctor No many times, and I didn't yeah. know that that was the, the I, joke. I, I, do, I do remember that bit of Doctor No. Yeah. It's sort of weird, isn't it? <laughs> So, so that's in the script, you didn't put that bit in? That's no. in the script, so we didn't drop that into Dr. No. No, no, that's actually from Dr. No. That yeah. Clip. yeah. yeah. And, and, and you didn't know the gentleman at all? No, Newton. no. And I mean, I'm of an age where I might just, I mean, I was a bit, I suppose about 11, 12, while it was yeah. all unfolding, but I obviously wasn't reading the papers or <laughs> absorbing them. But um, I suppose people a bit older than me will will remember it a bit more. I quite like that Pathé are doing this, they did misbehaviour. So this ripped from the headlines element of these kind of quaint stories. I mean, it's, it's got, it seemed to me it had something of the Ealing comedy a, to a, it. Yeah. Is that, was that one of your models? Or? Yeah, it's, it's, it's like an Ealing comedy and it's a social comedy. It's about a small man speaking truth to power. It, yeah. it ticks lots of those boxes. But it's also like those um, great, you know, early 60s films from the north by Carol Rice and you know, Saturday Night, Sunday Morning. The sporting life it's, yeah. it's very much that world as well so I wanted to find a line which straddled both those great British traditions the sort of vaguely social realist thing alongside what's evidently a comedy of manners which 
shouldn't be taken too seriously. No, and and a rather lo- a sort of lovely love story in a way. The marriage yeah. is what kicked. I mean, without yeah. the marriage, he'd be in right trouble, wouldn't he? Yeah, but I mean, he was a appalling husband. <laughs> Blatantly lied to his wife at any given moment, but but clearly totally besotted, and you know, and and she put up with him. So. I love it. I love it when they put the picture up of of the the actual gentleman at the end. You know. I yeah, mean, I like that. But it, it, it couldn't be anyone else but you. Oh, Roger, it looks like that, more like Roger, than <laughs> <laughs> but um, without the beard. But the um, no, I, 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 I identified with him completely from the word go. I thought I love playing him. I didn't. I said I wouldn't make the film without Jim. Yeah. I mean, there's just no point in making that film without Jim Broadbent. And thank God, Jim Broadbent felt the same way yeah. about it. And could you do, 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 what about the accent? It's hard on the Newcastle one, I know. Yeah, it? yeah, so there was a lot of, that was my main struggle in the whole thing, like to get that reasonably convincing. Yeah. But, um, so, and, and, but then that informed the whole character anyway, and his, his manner and his delivery. And, and I think Richard, being he, was, he probably had a, has a good ear for writing um, dialogue that has a, yeah, has a sort of Geordie vernacular. Mm. So that was that informed the whole thing. There is nothing more powerful than when a community discovers what it cares about. And when a man accepts our essential interdependence, in that moment he or she becomes a woman or a man, as the case may be. How many have you got? The petition's only one part of the campaign. Three. Oh, we've just set up. Hempton Bunton. That's not even a real name. Rome wasn't built in a day, Jackie. But then again, I wasn't on that particular job. Oh, hello. Didn't know you were political, Jackie Bunton. Yeah, it's me dad. It's the latest campaign. Me nan would love a telly. Why don't you sign my petition then, love? Oh, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm going to ask you two also a question that I have to ask if you're coming on my show. Have you seen anything good lately? What have you been watching, Jim Broadbent? What have I been watching? I've been watching lots of John Ford films. Oh, yeah. And I've been amazed by them, utterly amazed. The Westerns? Yeah, the Westerns. And I thought they were going to be one thing and they were completely different. They're unbelievably well acted, they're charming. Really? They've I got a huge heart. epic searchers type stuff. Yeah, I mean, they're most amazing films. And I take my... Stetson off to him. What an incredible director. So that's been one of my lockdown projects. Wow. I always mm. thought that Roger Michel would not, you know, I've never seen, I can't, I can't imagine you making a Western, getting you out, getting uh, you out of London. I, 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 I could make one now. Now yeah. I've watched all those John Ford movies. <laughs> yeah. I, I did like um, the, the Plot Against America. I'm not, I, I, oh, yeah. I, that was, uh, I, I did get through to the end of that. that was, but um, you watched that Iran docker. That's amazing. Yeah. That's absolutely no, fantastic. Absolutely oh, I don't know that one. Yeah. That's on, um, BBC, I think. Yeah. yeah. Plot Against Iraq, isn't it? Plot Against Iraq. Similar, yeah. similar title. And The Duke should be out in March next year. Bit of a wait for it, I know, but you'll definitely be hearing all about it. 
There was more British history in Miss Marx uh, on the Lido, which starred Romola Garay as Karl Marx's daughter Eleanor, who took on her father's legacy and fought for the workers and for female equality, all while marrying a philandering scoundrel called Edward, who no one seemed to like except Eleanor. Poor Eleanor. It's a period piece set in velvety, dimly lit parlours and factories, and it plays with the genre and bursts into to camera confessions and punk rock from LA band Downtown Boys. It's a, a heady, strange mix, perhaps not always successful, but it is great to see Romola Garay getting such a meaty and difficult role, which of course she carries off with her usual gusto and clear intelligence. So, of course, I invited her on to the show to celebrate Venice. Romola Garay. Hi, Jason. Good to see you. Really good to see you. <laughs> Congratulations. You're here with Mrs. with Miss Marks. I'm here with Miss Marks. Yes. Which is, yeah. you know, so beautiful because it's by an Italian director as well. Yes. So it's this slightly unusual situation where it's a biopic about an English woman, kind of in the tradition of like a, a you know, a period biopic, which we make a few of. But it's an Italian film. It's Italian money, all made here. We were in Cinecitta in Rome, and then uh, we did it a couple of weeks in Turin, and the Piedmont is kind of in the background mm. of the Western scenes, and then uh, we did a couple of weeks in Belgium at the end. And how was your Italian throughout? Terrible. Terrible throughout. Yeah. And my like overbearing RP British accent cuts through the gorgeous Italian in a way that makes it painful for me to say <laughs> anything in Italian. So even the scenes in Highgate Cemetery weren't in Highgate Cemetery. Though. That's right. Yeah. It was all it was a that was in in Liège in Belgium. Well, it yeah. looks pretty good. Yeah, it looks pretty good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Have you done the pilgrimage? Have you been to Highgate Cemetery? Yeah, I did actually well, so there's loads and loads in the public domain about Eleanor Marx, mm. all her letters, there's two major biographies. Then obviously you can go and do the pilgrimage like you say to Highgate and you know lay a rose at his grave and all the rest of it so yeah no we went there and uh, went to the house in uh, Primrose Hill where they lived when they were growing up so you know, quite familiar territory really but in North London and but also was she familiar territory to did you know about her before not at all really I, to my embarrassment because we did lots of reading around suffragette when that came out and she was a, you know a prominent part of the women's movement her name had come up in the research but I mean embarrassingly I really knew almost nothing about her at all because she wasn't quite a suffragette she wasn't a suffragette no she I mean so she was a a socialist a committed socialist Mm -hmm. and the women's movement at the time had a kind of slightly distanced relationship they didn't want to ally themselves closely with any political Mm -hmm. party because they were trying to you know obviously make it a a non-party political issue and and socialism was obviously the kind of you know the cause of her life she did a lot to bring conversations about feminism into the socialist Mm -hmm. conversation and issues to do with child labour as well. What did you think of her now you've got to know and now you've got to play her? You know, I, I did know the story about her because on my radio show, actually, my historian came on and talked about her and I was like, my God, this is fascinating. This should be a movie. Yeah. And then two years later, we leave. Yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, she had this... I don't know what, a weak spot for for Edward. I don't know what, you know, but yeah. that's, isn't that just normal? Is that just a human flaw? I think it's a human flaw that there's like, uh, you know, a, something we all have. There's a division between our, our intellectual ideals and our lives mm. and our, our loves and our soul. And every human being can relate to that. I think it was enhanced with her because she was her father's favourite child. He was this enormous figure and he, and she felt the duty to continue his work as a kind of, overbearing lifelong obsession really and mm. to ensure that his work and the, and the message of communism didn't die with him you know I'm just guessing here but I think what happened was that she didn't ever emotionally uncouple herself from her father and his legacy and then maybe some of that got misdirected onto Edward who was also a socialist campaigner and so she had a kind of 
father husband sort of uh, confusion yeah. going on which made it impossible for her to leave what was clearly a terrible marriage is this you working because when you play someone it's different from actually reading the history and the facts you do have to sort of flesh it out you have to sort of put your own psychological spin in order to give yourself some motivations in various places yeah and you know the thing is of course you don't you know you develop your own opinions they don't always correspond with the script and you know obviously you're essentially kind of confined to the script that you have and then sometimes interesting things come out of that conflict and if there's something in the script you disagree with you have you know you have a conversation about that and then you think well why is it that I resist that idea and what's that to do with and I think sometimes I did feel like when I was reading the script from that I was playing the character very frustrated by the kind of you know the way that the scenes didn't allow enough kind of explosion of emotion mm. and it felt quite restrained sometimes but you know the fact is that probably was the true condition of her life and I was kind of experiencing that emotionally on some level because I think she she was not able to really you understand the right right I don't yeah. know I've seen it you, you, but it's pretty emotional I, yeah <laughs> I run through some some light emotional changes well she does yeah. quite a lot of close-ups on you yeah uh, your director Suzanne she's so it's quite there and yeah so there's right a, every little tremor of the of yeah. Romola's gorgeous little face like Romola's <laughs> aging face I suppose yeah uh, it was a great part to get though amazing part to get I mean I feel so lucky actors wait their whole lives you know you job along on these jobs that pay the bills and then you know you sometimes never get to play a role like this I feel incredibly lucky to have done yeah, that yeah it starts on your face it, it, you know it's on, it's on and then you get to dance punk yeah sort of punk rock dancing at the end I yeah. dancing to Van and Knight no and I think people watching that film will think maybe <laughs> watching the Miss Marks may think that they never want to see anyone <laughs> Well, I mean, actually, the whole film was incredibly constructed, you know, every day we got to set, she'd set up the camera in advance, we were told where to stand, it was extremely it was different from the English tradition where the actors tend to kind of lead, mm. you know, it was completely oppositional to that, it was entirely about the framing. So that was 99% of the time, that was what happened on the film, except for one scene where I had to dance to this punk rock song, like in my underwear. And, and then she just said, just dance. I mean, I didn't have any kind of choreography or of anything. It was absolutely the most embarrassing thing I've ever done in my entire life. Because I know you can dance, like, you know, rather daintily, should you be required I, The thing to. is, I thought, oh, wow, I'm probably going to look like really amazing. And like, I've had some kind of dance experience. And then we watched it on that massive screen last night. And I was like, I look not only like a terrible dad dancer, but also completely insane. <laughs> but I think it works though, because it is a dance of anger and freedom and it should be unscripted because she's all sort of completely Yeah, unfurling. I think Susanna felt like it would be hard for her to, you know, there's nothing in the historical records to suggest that her and Edward ever really address the kind of fundamental problems of their relationship, mm. his infidelity, his problems with money and the fact that there was clearly this kind of deep inequality in their marriage. I think she felt uncomfortable writing that scene when there wasn't that in the history book. So she took that kind of rage that you would want to see in a, in a protagonist kind of expressing about the situation and put it into that yeah. into that moment. And um, how are you about being in Venice? Were, were you, as soon as it was selected, you were like, I'm coming, whatever happens? I mean, I would have got into a suitcase and spent the entire time in, 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 in the uh, holds in order to get to Venice. I've never been to Venice before. It's my first time at the festival. I can't believe it. Everyone else is walking around, I think, 
you know, slightly sad that it's not the usual Venice, you know, that there's less people and all the rest of it. But I have nothing to compare it to, so I'm just completely delighted. It's actually, it's actually pretty close to it. Oh, it's good. It's a little bit le- less pe- yeah, fewer people. Yeah, but that's quite nice. Which is quite yeah. nice. <laughs> but it is, I'm, it's a, I mean, I've been here a few days and every day I'm like, crikey, there's more people. I'm, yeah. It's, it's the most people it's I've seen. picking up, definitely. I've not it, seen this many people. Yeah. I don't know about you. Since no, God, no. Yeah, absolutely. Been, you know, the, the, with the kids and and that's about it you know yeah. so uh, but you were you busy during lockdown so i was kind of busy through choice just because i just can't do nothing i just psychologically just like find that just like the yeah. worst kind of horror yeah. so we were at home I have young children so you know we were doing the homeschooling but half the day I was just in the office like trying to write I mean write anything like I'll probably end up throwing most of it yeah. away but I just couldn't sit with myself for like you know or, or relax people kept telling me to relax I was like I can't imagine anything worse I just need to be distracted <laughs> but you made you made a film haven't you Last I time made we a spoke, film you were making a film you've written the script you're yeah. making a horror film yeah I made a horror film and that so that was in Sundance, which, you know, was absolutely the like final moments before the world changed and we went into full lockdown. So I've had this quite weird thing where I've been bookended by my film coming out at Sundance and then this film being in, in Venice. So and we're going to see that? You yeah, know so it came out in America during the lockdown. So it played like at some drive-ins. So the theatrical release was quite kind of affected by COVID. But So it was on streaming platforms, obviously, but there were some cinemas that played it. And then the UK release, I'm hoping, will be probably November time, like What's a bit later this year. It's called Amulet. Amulet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're in it as well? No. No, no, no. Just directing? Just directing. Look yeah. at you. Do, now you're at an auteur's film festival because you're on auteur now. Yeah, kind of. I mean, if you've made a horror film, I don't know, people are always a bit like, mm, sort of an auteur, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's brilliant, though. I know how hard you work to get it done and Thanks. try to find a way to get get yourself into that game yeah so that's brilliant it's really difficult and you know it, it, it's something that like took a you know I made my short film when I was 30 so it was eight years ago and then the transition into making a feature is really difficult mm. and I, I kind of thought because of my background as an actress that I would you know make that transition smoothly but the kind of mid-budget films that I predominantly made as an actor have kind of disappeared or you need like a massive star in it or you know it needs to be about someone that everybody knows like Queen Victoria or something so the scripts that I was writing and the things that I was interested in it just wasn't pushing forward and then somebody said to me look if you make a genre film and you make it for less than a million pounds that you can do so then I had to sit down and write a horror film which was uh, yeah something of a, and not of a new thing for me genre of, of natural or choice well I've always loved horror it didn't feel like an unnatural home for me in terms of my taste I would say I'm probably more of a fan of the kind of auteury end of the horror spectrum but I do love horror films but I'd never been in one as an actor so you know being on a set and doing special effects and visual effects and you know working with blood blood pumps and puppets and like that I had absolutely no background in at all so it was a swift learning curve wow so um I'm going to ask you because you're on the show you seen anything good lately Romola yeah, I have. Yeah. What did we watch in lockdown? Well, we started off trying to be very good and watch like Sight and Sound's 100 best films. Like everybody, we had all of these ideas. So we watched Floating Weeds, which yeah, I've never beautiful. seen before. And because it's about a company of actors and, you know, it's about an older actor returning to this town that he played in 20 years before, I think it really affected me and my husband and we were sort of like absolutely inconsolable throughout the whole film it was completely amazing I cannot encourage people to see it enough it was amazing it was my first Ozu and I was 
blown away. It was an amazing yeah. film. And we also watched Chernobyl, which is for me the best piece of television I've ever seen. Yeah. Ever seen. It was I, I was my chin was on the floor every single second at the acting, at the directing. I went to bed every night, churned up in a way I just I mean, it was just mind-blowing. I had that. It was, it was people come on the show and that's the one they say. Yeah. You know, it's almost sort of artistically way yeah. beyond anything else. And I haven't seen it yet. It is a classic of television that I think is going to be hard for people to match for generations. It's, it's extraordinary. You, and you know some people in it, presumably. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Who did I... Yeah, I mean, I've met some of the actors in it, but nobody like... No, I didn't know anyone really well oh, who was in it. Yeah. Only great mates. Not great mates. No, yeah, no right, massive great mates. But yeah, I'd met some of the actors who were in it. And, they, and oh my God, Jesse Buckley is so incredible in it. It's an extraordinary performance. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I, I must catch that up. The really classy people on the show, oh, they oh, recommend that they one. Say? Yeah. 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 Uh, and what about rubbish? You've been watching rubbish? Yeah. Well, we just, I think, oh, I don't know if other people have this. We just went, we sat down every night and just wanted to watch comedies. Yeah. So that's all we wanted to watch. Half yeah, half-hour yeah. comedies. So we watched some amazing comedies. We re-watched Toast, which is our sort of go-to thing that we always love. We really love Dave. Did I love Dave, that? I yes. lo We love Dave. Oh my God, I thought that was amazing. I thought the final episode of that was one of the Totally, best. it was extraordinary, wasn't it? And, and the episode where you sort of, you, you know, it was a really important episode, wasn't it? To kind of segue into into the life of Gator and his, you know, so you got a perspective of the African-American yeah. character on it. And it was just, that was amazing. I really, really loved that. And then we just watched the second season of There She Goes. Is really that the one with David Tennant? It, yeah, Hines. that's right. Yeah. Have you ever seen yeah, it? Yeah, I saw the first, and I, yeah. I found it very difficult. Yeah, because it's, it's supposed to be difficult. Yeah, and cute and heartbreaking at the same time. And I, I and it was built as a comedy. I was like, yeah, but this isn't comedy. It's not really a comedy in the way that, like, but it, at the same time, the desperation of it is just it's so comforting in a way yeah. because it kind of is something that really strips away the human condition, and it doesn't try and be uplifting in a way that sometimes film, because of the structure of it, they always have to tap that on at the yeah. end. But it makes no attempt to do that. No, it's is really brilliant. and down and honest, I suppose yeah. it's honest. really I mean, honest it. and really bold, yeah. Oh, and uh, Mrs. America. I really, really loved Mrs. America. The styling on that show. was pretty Oh, it was incredible, yeah. And I love, actually, I'm not really into short stories or short form, really, but the, the fact that they switched character was really brilliant because, you know, you can't do a story about the women's movement experience with suffragette that just, you know, tells one perspective on 50% of the world's population and they got around that really well by giving every episode a different perspective on, on the women's movement. And I know, you were like, oh great, it's Rose Burns. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, Kate and it was an interesting yeah. one because Kate Blanchett was here. You might see Yeah, her. yeah, I did. I saw her from afar and yeah, it was amazing. But it's great because it, it, in a way you're not expecting her to be the hero Yeah, she's sort of... Oh, that's like the baddie in it, yeah. you could say, if you wanted to, if you come from a liberal perspective, you're like, how come the, the hero is not supporting the women's movement? Yeah, no, but it was, I thought it was really important and impressive that they did that because in these politically very divided times, you know, there is this kind of thing where in our world, the kind of narrative lockdown occurs where, you know, there isn't the embracing of kind of a yeah. range of political perspectives. And, and to have a character who was like fighting tooth and claw to retain a family structure that completely defined her and she felt was under threat was, yeah, was really important, I thought. Like a certain Miss Marks that we know. Like a certain Miss Marks, yes, yeah. Brilliantly <laughs> yeah. brought together yeah. there. Neatly tied together, yeah. That's what we do on this show. Yeah. Robin, a beautiful to see you. Yeah, so great to see you. Thanks, Thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks for having me.
we're here, we definitely need to get some Italian perspective on the whole thing. So I turn to Pier Francesco Favino, one of Italy's most international of actors. He's worked on Hollywood hits such as Night at the Museum. He was Christopher Columbus, if you care to look. Uh, he was in Angels and Demons, uh, Narnia, and he's been in homegrown titles such as Romanzo Criminale, Subura, and The Keys to the House, uh, big Italian hits. And he's here in Venice starring in a film called Padre Nostro, but he's also on our screens in The Traitor, a mafia epic by Marco Bellocchio, which uh, was released in the UK during lockdown by Modern Films and is now available streaming and is, is fantastic and I really urge you to see that. He plays the Italian informant, the mafia informant, uh, Tommaso Buscetta, a really big sort of thuggish guy who turns tables on the mafia. Get to see that. Uh, he's brilliant in that. So I caught up with him here in Venice to find out about being in his home nation's festival, to find out more about him himself to find out the screen heroes he takes inspiration from and to find out why he speaks such good English. Where's I'm an actor, never believe me. I'm, I'm, I'm a monkey. <laughs> this <laughs> is all a script. <laughs> no, I lived in London for a while and then I've always been fond of, of England and, and the English culture. So yeah. Since I was a kid I had the chance to, to learn English and, um, and I have lots of friends. Lots did, of where did you live in London? Uh, well, different uh, areas. So Knightsbridge at first, and then I moved to Camden Town. So it was like completely. Oh, because the, you've got the posh Knightsbridge, Knightsbridge accent. <laughs> but, but I just put put it up if you if you lay on me. No, I could speak different ways if you want me. But hey, man, don't let me do that. <laughs> no, but but I really I really, I'm really fond of London. I love it. Yeah, well, we have seen you in in Hollywood films and British films uh, as well. And I was wondering if it's different acting in Italian to it is in well, English. Well, of course, when when you play with your mother tongue. So there's something in your in your flesh in your blood that that has the the, the possibility to spring out uh, without you wanting to. So now I start to have the feeling that I don't have to translate it into my mind when I speak or when I am. So it, as an actor, it starts to give me a buddy, even when I speak in English mm. now. But it took me a while, and I think it's uh, it's also you know it's it's different. Every language has its own structure. And it's not just how well you speak it or what's the sound of, of, of the language. It's what you mean by using some words. And English people are very good at this. <laughs> so we always need hands as Italians or buddy uh, to, to explain what we want to say. But it's not just a formal thing. I think it's it's the way you think. Yeah. And we, we English, we say one thing and underneath it means... Exactly. Which is pretty much what we might do when we use our dialects. Or accents, mm. depending on what you do. But for example, you in the traitor, there, there are different layers of, of uh, communication. Of course, because you have the, the, the mafia code, and then you have the but also the, the body language and the body, body language. I mean, I, I wanted to learn it, and uh, and it's like never-ending. It's a never-ending vocabulary. <laughs> well, all the, the, the I, this is working well on radio, but it's but, the, the face gestures. We are there. waving <laughs> our hands at the moment, but no, but but it's not just that. It's like some the way you sit, the the way you use words in a, in a not proper way. Uh, I have, I've understood that the codes are are, are very rich. Yeah, interesting. Um, I'm going to ask you since the name of the show is seen anything good lately. Have you been watching anything good recently? Well, I, I had the chance to, to get to the cinema, so I wanted to see Tenet, and, uh, and I've been, I enjoyed it, because uh, first of all, I was so happy to be back to, in, in a theatre, yeah. and I really wanted to enjoy it uh, as, a, as a kid. So that's the, 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 
the last movie that I saw. So you, were the, you went to the cinema? I, I, I ran. <laughs> I ran. I literally ran. I wanted to go there. And so when I had the chance to mask on, I, I did that. And I'm happy I did it. In, in Rome? In that was in Tuscany because I'm, I'm actually shooting a movie in Tuscany. So um, when I knew that there was a cinema that played it, and um, I, I said, let's go. And, and there was a bunch of actors and, and mm -hmm. people from the crew that yeah. really wanted and we were, we were really excited to have the chance to go. Great. In terms of acting, your heroes as actors, were they Italian or Hollywood or British? Well, why, why choose? I mean, there's, there's uh, so many incredible actors uh, that you can be uh, influenced by or inspired by. So, of course, I started with the Italian ones, and there are so many that you're talking about. Mastroianni, Volonté, Gasman, uh, Toto. 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 <laughs> I mean, I, I was, I was, I grew up with them. He's a more of a comic clown. He's, actor, he was, yeah. yes, he was a clown. And then, of course, little by little, getting to know all of the great actors in the world. I mean, it's not just English or American. Of course, uh, I, I really liked, as I said before, I belong to the first generation of people in Italy who had the chance to see uh, original versions of movies. So we got the chance to, to hear to their real voices and to understand what they were doing. So when I was a kid, I watched movies for entertainment. Then when I, when I decided I wanted to be an actor, I started to look at it in a more proper way mm. and trying to, to understand the secrets of this work, if there's any. But uh, so, uh, and I, I really, I remember I had this VHS that I used to play and still, play and still, play and still, play and still, and going back, forth and back, and, and forth, and, and um, really breaking them to get the chance to understand which, how they which were. Which actor? Well, De Niro, Tashina uh, Hoffman, of course, Marlon Brando, of course, but being a a huge fan of Shakespeare, Laurence Olivier or, or Albert Finney, Dara Jacobi, Paul Schofield. Yeah, uh, you have a Paul Schofield look about you. Well, actually, well thank you say. very much. <laughs> thank you very much. I mean, it's one of the greatest actors uh, we, we have a chance to see. on. on I, I had the chance to, to, to see him on stage too, so I was lucky enough. But even talking about stage, I remember seeing Anthony Sher. Mm -hmm. uh, his famous Richard III. The Richard III, yeah. There's um, that and the Merchant of Venice, the two. Yeah, exactly. And Mark Rylance, still. Javier Bardem. I mean, and actresses. I mean, yeah. I mean you, it's not just actors. It's you, true, you, actually. You, 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 you get, you, here we have uh, one of the most wonderful actresses in the world. I think Kate Blanchett is definitely my inspiration. Mm -hmm. And there are so many. So in every actor, you can find something. Uh, it's as if in every human being. So if you watch the work carefully, without maybe being driven only by the technical aspect of it, but just as a simple viewer, you get to understand a lot. And sometimes you ask yourself, how did they do that? Yeah. But then in, in the end, I like watching movies and I like to lose myself into movies. And then maybe you get back to, to, to watch them again, as we were saying, and tr try to sneak into their, yeah. their little secrets. But I, I love when I, when I don't watch movies as an actor. I mean, I, I love being taken, taken away by, by well, the story. That's what we're here for at Venice. Amazing that we can have a festival where we yes. have the chance to, to disappear into movies. Yes. I'm going to have to go and do that myself nice watch right now. Thank you very much. <laughs> you too. <laughs> so let's disappear into movies. I really enjoyed disappearing into the world of Padre Nostro. Grazie, Pier Francesco Favino. 
what a show this has been, no? I've really enjoyed it. I enjoyed making it. I hope you're enjoying listening to it. Look, I think we've just got time to catch up with the director and producer of a real film showdown. It's a documentary called Hopper Wells, uh, in which all the film heads here absolutely lapped up. Of course they would. You know, a documentary about these two film mavericks. It's an intense conversation filmed between Dennis Hopper and Orson Wells interviewing each other. It was filmed nearly 50 years ago, but only being shown now. I caught up with its director, Philip Van Rysma to find out how he made it and to find out what these two maverick spirits would make of Venice and cinema today. I mean, strangely, it's very topical. Talk about a timely film, even though it was made 50 years ago, even though the conversation was shot 50 years ago, let's put it that way. Just talking about... I uh, hope we're vibing a little bit of the Hopper Wells thing right here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's some of the the strange, yeah, it's a little conversation that we're having here. We don't have a camera dancing around us. But we're Uh, mavericks. And we are mavericks. (laughs) And we don't have the gin and tonics. Those those are an important ingredient in Hopper Wells. But uh, it's a it's strangely timely film, and I think with both, I mean, Mosquito State, uh, to me, it was you know, reflecting on our current state of affairs uh, geopolitically. What well, makes you have say a that? political element? Yeah, I, I see that with Mosquito State for uh-huh. sure. But with Hopper Wells, what makes you what makes you say that that's that's relevant? Civil rights. I mean, look what's going on in the states. It's unbelievable. Uh, I mean, it's the same debate. And you know, what's the role of the artist in terms of their political view? How is your point of view more effective? Uh, do you use it simply as a platform and you voice your views directly? Do you do so through your work? Not everybody's comfortable doing both. And so that debate's fascinating. I think it's that that's a debate that you know everybody in the States is having. And I'm talking about the States in particular. So I think it's spread around the it's, world. It's spread around the world, of course. But I think, you know, it's, if, if we're looking at it at this point, um, it is the, you know, the central debate outside of the pandemic. It is the, you know, the, the civil rights issue in, in the U.S. The other thing that it seems to me is very relevant and it, it may be a hill of beans, but while you're here mm-hmm. in, in, in a festival celebrating cinema, the longest mm-hmm. continuous running yes. festival in the world now, mm-hmm. definitely. <laughs> yeah. But it's definitely done it this year. Uh-huh. The state of cinema seems to be something that they're both talking about. Wells having been through the studio system, bruised by it, Hopper establishing a new aesthetic, establishing a new maverick mm-hmm. 70s feel. That that seems to be something that we're we're in again right now. And certainly your, your films are doing, because you, you had a Netflix movie. Yes. Uh, so I, I'm intrigued as to... to to where you are on on that side of the debate and the future of cinema. I mean, it's I love the theatrical experience. I think that there's no substitute for it. We obviously, even with Netflix, that was part of the equation. There was a uh, a theatrical release with it. It wasn't huge, but obviously, it's such a niche film to begin with. Mm. Other side of the wind wasn't something that was going to play on a thousand screens. But that theatrical experience and the shared experience is incredibly important. Uh, obviously, you know, the role of the festival for films like this, films that let's just say, you know, are specific. And I think, you know, need festivals to be able to help promote them and, and to be able to experience it with an audience, you know, to get the blessing of a festival that obviously, you know, when you talk about a brand and, you know, the curators here, the mm. programmers, Alberto, you know, as, t- as tastemakers, it, it's, you know, that's a big part of it. Were you more intolerant of, uh, did you have more kinds of movies you were against when you were a kid than you are now? I am. I'm getting to like more kinds of movies. Well, it's so difficult to make movies that, uh, you know, it's very easy not never to have made a movie and to hate all movies except for a very few. But once you've made a movie, realize how much work is involved. I think almost anybody who gets any kind of movie at all made is like, you know, really uh, way ahead. (laughs) 
hard. Well, it's, you know, the well, editing, the work. editing gets to be... But don't you think in some ways it's awfully easy? I love the creating the idea, I love the shooting it, I love the casting of it, I love the doing, you know, but when it gets down to the editing of it, it becomes like having a child and, and well, suddenly cutting its arms off and putting its eyes out and, um... Because you miss the good things that go? Yeah. Yeah. But it, I don't and also because it's so personal. I mean, it just, it gets, um, it gets heavy. I don't know, it seems to me that, that you, you, can, uh, you can only make a movie by taking out all kinds of beloved things, otherwise it doesn't have any shape. Oh, there's it, no question. Yeah, yeah. Isn't, isn't all movie making, uh, imagining it and realizing it and all that a sort of happy social event and the, and the really creative job is the dirtiest one. It's in an empty, dark room. Uh, I think what you mean by hard work? No, I think the movies the movies are made uh, on the set, but they're later made remade in in the in the editing room. I mean, the editing is very important. There's no question about it. What do you think that Orson Welles and Davis Hopper would have made of the cusp that we're at now in the future of cinema, the theatrical experience, the COVID sort of taking a, a sterilized process to it, and and then and, then, and Netflix having a streaming platform? What do you think they'd have done with it? I don't know. I think Welles was always so receptive. I mean, it's you know, you talk about somebody as a maverick being so far ahead of his time. It's hard to speak on behalf of him, but it's always a person who played with form and wanted his films to be seen by the biggest audiences. I think, you know, with Netflix, I was extremely fortunate. Beatrice Wells, I think, you know, spoke very eloquently about what she thought her father would have said. And, and she was extremely supportive of Netflix. And, and not only because of Other Side of the Wind. With the younger generation, it's, you know, it, it, we're talking about a generation that didn't really know Citizen Kane. So, you know, when, when the whole conversation about Wells starts, you're educating this generation or future generations and you know they were able to also license a lot of other titles, so you they put together kind of a catalog. Mm. And Netflix is obviously for binging, right? Not that you know Wells movies are that bingeable. I think all of them they're so challenging in and of themselves. Um, but you you can do your own little mini festival. He looked like himself. He he liked to binge. Yes. Oh, <laughs> ouch. I mean, the best way yeah. of everything, yeah. of culture, yes. Of, yes. of life, yes. of drink. Of I mean, he, he, he had a full life, and I think he he loved to live. So absolutely. It's funny. It's, uh, you know, it's uh, obviously they're sitting there over dinner, right, yeah. talking. And, uh, and I think Orson, you know, makes a little crack at it. It's funny just how fierce of a defender of Wells Hopper was because that the issue of his yes. weight and the fact that he had become a little bit of a joke. And I read that Mustard interview with Hopper and man was he, you know, like he just said, what the fuck are people doing? Do they not realize that this is the biggest giant? I mean, to him, you know, this is the person who set up what he had then followed with Easy Rider, which is to act, write, direct, produce. I mean, he followed the, the Citizen Kane model with yeah. Easy Rider. Orson had enough of a sense of humor to be self-deprecating that way. They were also yeah, great cinematic artists, but they were both mm -hmm. artists. Orson, yeah. famous drawer, mm -hmm. uh, popular great photographer, also yes. great artist, mm -hmm. great art collector. Yeah. I think they came together quite 
well, I don't. They didn't talk about it. I don't know if there's more in the, no. in the conversation about mm-hmm. that. But they obviously had that that kindred spirit, even though you know movies aside, they had an artistic. They're just pure artists. Yeah. I think it's you know no matter what. I think they live their life also in, in in similar ways. They they go well beyond that. I think in terms of their you know career trajectories, or at least kind of starting out with uh, you know with, with talking about starting off with Citizen Kane and starting out with Easy Rider, two films that totally revolutionized the art of cinema. And, and then finding it difficult to work within the studio system. Mm-hmm. And, and you can just hear it in this. this is, that's the strange dramatic tension of Hopper Wells, is that you know what's about to happen to Hopper with last movie. Yes. And it's, you hear it there. It's like in every word, we're talking about editing, talking about you know, fighting the system. And it's Wells, I mean, it's, does he see it? I, I don't know, but I mean, he went through the exact same thing with Touch of Evil. Yeah, I mean, constantly. Yes, well. He was yeah. always fighting with the studios. Fighting for his cut, and of, of course, both being, in a way, you know, self-destructive. Yes. I mean, they could not get out of their own way. I mean, they had to have it their way, which I mean, the films would have been very different. Talk about it being so autocratic. Yeah. Not allowing for room or zero compromise. That's why I asked what would they have done with the newfound freedoms of Netflix, which I've never worked for Netflix. Yeah. But, you know, the studios are difficult places right now. What with, you know, they want franchises or they want, you know, superhero mm-hmm. movies or they want three parts. Whereas Netflix, from what I hear to certain documentary makers, they go, right, well, here's two million pounds, two million quid, go make it. I, I think that, you know, with both of them as artists and, you know, being given those freedoms, I suppose that they would have had those opportunities. They would have had way more opportunities. Um, yes, I mean, it's, that was my experience with Netflix and with friends who have done films for Netflix in various capacities, be it as producers or directors, is that, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's go make your film. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's incredible as an artist to be given that opportunity. Will we be seeing this one on Netflix? I mean, we'll see. I think it's, nobody knew about this film until the festival announced it. Oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah we, kept it, we kept it a total secret. And so, you know, so distribution is just catching up. I mean, on many levels, it would make sense. But it's, you know, until this film premieres, I mean, nobody's seen it. Right, and so so we'll we'll start here, and hopefully the the reaction to it, which is what I'm gathering, is going to be very strong, and that Netflix. Oh, I think people are going to be very fond of it. Yeah, and I I think Netflix is going to be interested. Yeah, Yeah. well, I wish you the best of luck with that. Thank you. Really nice to see you. Really nice to meet you. Congratulations on getting two films in the festival. Oh, it's greedy. It's 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 really. I should give one of them away. It's Wellesian. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, I think that's a suitably filmy note on which to end. The thought of Hopper and Wells riding into the sunset, easy riders carrying the future of cinema side saddle with them. What will the future be? Well, I don't know. Venice asked questions and came up with some answers on how to get a major festival running in a pandemic. They did it, I have to say. I was pleasantly surprised. There was a lot of people about here. There's a lot of screenings, busy screenings. These cinemas here, uh, the Grande takes a 1,000, the Saladasana takes 1,500, and though they were half filled, that's still 500 people and 700 people. The Palabianale had 800 people in it. So we're talking about big, big numbers here. Uh, there was a lot of chatter and general excitement about being back and working face-to-face. My first actual one-to-one interviews, in fact, are of this whole scene anything good lately season and I have to say it was great to see those faces even if we couldn't you know and shake hands and have physical contact but thanks to all the guests who joined me and made this 77th Venice Film Festival and my edition of Seen Anything Good Lately such a fresh start and a fascinating show and most of all grazie Venezia arrivederci tutti see you all very soon indeed right 
I think I can probably take my mask off now, right?